welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another Knock On Podcast. I'm pretty excited about this one because I've got my good buddy, Mike Slinkard, with us. Hey, Mike. Hey, how's it going, John? Going pretty good. Oh, I forgot to warn you, too. If all of a sudden there's a big delay in me talking, that's just part of the loveliness of Skype. So you'll have to just figure out what I said and, and wing it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Seems like we, seems we'll like, work with that. Yeah, it seems like we have a good connection. But uh, just to let everyone know, um, Mike Slinkard has been around the archery industry for a long, long time. He's a great friend, an awesome hunter. Um, you know, originally started Winner's Choice, and now has a really cool company um, with a product that I really believe in. Um, and there's some super cool technology behind it with the Hex. And um, although I know I want to dive into a bunch of cool topics because I really value your opinion on the technical side too, Mike, but we might as well start out by talking. Let's just talk a little bit about Hex. And, you know, I remember before you even started that company, you know, me and you were kind of talking about Sixth Sense um, and animals. And I know you had that conversation with Ulmer. And then next thing you know, a year later, you show up with uh, with the ninja cloak suit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I don't know about a ninja cloak suit, but it, it is a neat technology. Actually, we've been working on it, honestly, sort of in secret, honestly, for, oh, gosh, it's about 2006. So, yeah. uh, you, know, uh, you know, when you and I were out here all kind of together, we had some conversations about that and, and of course, unbeknownst to you at the time i'd already been studying it quite a bit and had quite a bit of information on it but you know basically what it's all about is you know as hunters and especially if you're an experienced hunter when you get close to a, an animal and particularly if he's got age on him you know there's going to be a certain amount of time that you have before that animal you can watch his body language it's going to change it's going to go from completely calm to, um, you know, to uh, much more more heightened senses and that kind of thing. And, and uh, you know, that's really what it's all about. And, you know, it just started as a question way back when is why do animals do this? And, you know, it was one of those things that, you know, as a mule deer hunter particularly, I sound more on mule deer because I'm a western guy, but, man, when you're stalking a buck, you know, a bedded deer or whatever, this is normally how we hunt them in the early season, and you get close, it's usually you don't have to wait very long before he stands up or he, a lot of times they take out of there, you know, on a run. And that's with the wind right or whatever. And, uh, you know, that was one of our, one of our things that we were interested in. And through a bunch of different research, we, we found that the electrical energy that our bodies create through heart rate and muscle movement is actually very, very similar to the electrical field of the earth. And, there's a ton of study out there on how animals navigate and how they pick that up. So basically, in a nutshell, we said, you know, what if they're using the same mechanism that they navigate with to, uh, to actually pick up, you know, when other large living beings are close to them? 
and that's just kind of the kind of where it all went. And uh, lo and behold, we actually were able to prove that that is in fact true. And uh, you know, birds see it visually, so it's a it's something we learned a lot with. But it's a really a neat concept, and and something that's taken off very well now. Oh yeah, yeah, and it's a it's a subject that I think any any hunter who has been in the woods a few even even up to just a few times you have those encounters with a very very mature animal you know it might be the biggest buck in your area or the biggest bull and they literally come in and then without even you know the wind can be hard in your face you can have everything perfect you haven't moved or anything and then and i've even had this in blinds where you're sitting in a blind totally airtight and you can just see that animal get a little bit at unease and they kind of they back out of there kind of trying to be sly about it and then once they get to a safe zone where they can bolt they do and you know that's that's really the what we were talking about it's what causes you know what causes really mature animals and certainly predatory animals like I know with with bears um, mm-hmm. and cats I've had times where it's like there's no way this cat should even know that I'm here and they know you know they they really pick up on it so I'm we're, I'm certain it's all related yeah yeah it really is um, certain different animals are, are you know more attuned to it than others um, you know we actually mentioned Randy Ulmer and he's a good friend of both of ours and course uh, in my opinion the best bow hunter that's ever lived and one of the best archers that's ever lived um and i was fortunate enough to know him through you know the shooting sports and all that kind of stuff we shot uh espn together and some stuff in the years past but you know randy and i were every year at the ata we always have a big talk about our hunts or whatever and you know randy's probably killed more big mature mature mule deer than just about anybody and one of the things that when we were kind of getting into this i was talking to randy about mule deer hunting and uh randy made a statement he says you know when i'm hunting these big bucks i don't ever try to get inside of 40 yards he says because if you if you get inside of 40 yards they just know you're there and it was interesting to me because we'd been kind of in on this path of you know why and how and everything like that and for a guy like that to say he doesn't get inside of 40 yards because of that reason that was really a a validation point for me and, and one that you know, kind of spurred us along, you know, in our research and was able to bring it up. But, but you're exactly right. Um, you know, different animals pick it up differently. Uh, cats, canines are also extremely attuned to it. Um, actually, there's some really interesting new research that just came out on dogs and how they are using the uh, electrical fields to, uh, like, like foxes use it to, to hone in on their prey, that kind of thing. But, uh, but you're right, bears, cats, dogs, um, you know, they're all, all very, very attuned to it. You know, the other interesting thing, since it's April and people are thinking about turkey hunting, birds see it visually. And we didn't realize this really to start with, although the research was there if we would have went all the way through it at the time. But birds see these fields visually. And so the effects of the hex suit on turkeys and waterfowl and, you know, even songbirds and stuff like that is really profound. Um, what it allows you to do is it allows you to get away with movement. Um, and we all know that that's, uh, that's something that with, uh, if you're an archery hunter and you hunt turkeys, that's hard to do. 
And, uh, you know, I've probably taken, I don't know, 25 or 30 turkeys with a bow now wearing the suit. And I've gotten so bold that, I, I mean, I don't even use a blind or anything. I just set out. I've got a little chair that I can rotate and draw my bowies in. And these birds come in and, and, you know, it used to be I'd wait till they turn, you know, and do all that stuff that we all thought we needed to do. But now, I mean, I'm confident enough with it now. I mean, the last several I've taken while they were looking at me, and, I mean, I've gotten a full draw, and they stay at full strut till the arrow hits them. So really a cool technology with uh, with birds, especially going into this time of year, you know. Yeah, I saw some footage with um, you and our buddy Randy Peck, and, mm-hmm. um, and it was – I'm even still, I want to see it for myself because you guys were literally sitting in a freaking fold out chair in the middle, in the middle of almost nothing and mm-hmm. called birds in and literally draw back and shoot them. It was, yeah. I mean, it, if, if there's, if I'm ever going to be a skeptic, I'm like, that would be, that would be the thing. But you know, when you, I also saw footage with you crawling out like crawling into the middle of a flock of geese with that thing, that was pretty unbelievable too. I mean, mind blowing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, um, that was. I, I'm. I haven't really been a big waterfowl hunter where I live. It's pretty dry. We're out in the eastern Oregon, so you think about Oregon, you think about rain, but actually, my side of the state's dry. But uh, you know, when we were realizing that birds see this visually, I said, "Man, I've got to try this on geese," and so. What I did is I actually booked a hunt with an outfitter that was out of the Portland area, and the that western flyway through there just gets hammered. And I couldn't get in until the near near the end of the season. It was actually between Christmas and New Year's. And this this guy, I had a heck of a time finding a guide that wanted to do what I wanted to do because I told him, "Look, I'm going to pay you no matter what, but I want to sit outside. I don't want to sit sit in the layout blind." And they said, "Well, we'll bring your layout blind just in case you want to uh, just in case you want to shoot some geese." I said, "All right, whatever." So we go out, we set up, we get the decoys set up, you know, before daylight, like you do, and everything. And in this area, you can't start shooting until eight o'clock. So about now seven thirty, the geese start flying, and heck, I'm still standing up, and these geese come in, fly right over my head, and land in the set, and. Uh, you know, so I, they, they lit, so I go ahead and sit down, and here come more, they come and landed, and, and uh, so I thought, you know, I've, I've got almost half an hour now before we can shoot, and I told Rex, my camera guy, I, I said, just roll it, and let's see what happens, and so I crawled, you know, it was probably 25 yards out to the decoys, I guess, and there was actually six geese setting in the decoy set that I was going out, we had two sets, and anyway, this was the closest, and so I picked one out, and I started crawling to him, and and, uh, you know, I didn't know how this was going to work for sure. And I crawl all the way out, and literally, if I would have jumped forward, I probably could have grabbed the goose. And all of them sat there. I was, I'm in the decoy spread with the live geese, and they're just, they're just kind of slowly walking away looking at me. And they finally did fly. But, uh, I mean, that one honestly even surprised me, uh, particularly on these geese. And, and these guys have been hunting them, you know, solid since September, and uh, that would blew them away pretty well too. And then we proceeded to go back, and I sat outside the blind, just basically I was sitting on the edge of a ditch and sat there, and we shot our limit in about oh I don't know about an hour I guess. And uh, so uh, it was it was an interesting experience, and uh, certainly an eye opener for those guides. And they, by the way, use hex all the time now too. So well, and the well <laughs> the other thing too that is is mind blowing is scott 
and I know you you got pretty you got pretty aggressive to me to not start hanging out with Scott on these deep sea dives. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, our, Scott's, our bu- Scott's yeah, our buddy Scott. Yeah, yeah. Um, and for those of you listening, um, you need to you actually need to follow Scott on Instagram. I'm gonna give you his um, I'm gonna give you his thing right now. He's uh, actually it's I'm trying to think. He does it backwards, doesn't he? Does yeah. It's Eastman so he, Scott, I think. Yeah, Eastman Eastman dot Scott is his um is his handle on Instagram. And ever since Hex and he used to be he's in um in a spectacular shape now from diving, but um he wasn't like that always and now since you guys developed and pretty much discovered how well this technology is working um with sharks and um underwater animals fish he is really getting into the spear fishing and his he's got some wickedly cool photos on his instagram from these deep depths where he's down in the freaking dark water down there shooting fish i mean he literally looks like he looks like a sitting duck and just a you know i forgot what uh joe rogan referred to the ocean as but he he uh if he re- he referred to it as something soup, but that's literally what he looks like. Like he's just in this abyss of who knows God what. But the hex suit is doing some amazing things. You guys are going all over the world showing exactly what you can do with this suit because the fish have no idea that you're there. They don't they don't really know what you are, I guess. Yeah, well, you know, there's a lot of study with uh, with underwater animals. Of course, everybody knows the sharks and rays, and, you know, the thing is they're discovering more underwater animals that are very attuned to this, too. When we first started Hex uh, Aquatic, um, you know, we didn't even realize that, and science didn't either, that, that lobsters are extremely attuned to it. So, you know, the guys that are diving down and, and you know, I'm literally they're picking the lobsters up by hand without them even having any reaction at all and, and it's just amazing with that but you know scott eastman's our ceo and you know one of my best friends in the world known him for a long time and you know he's a heck of a bow hunter always has been but uh yeah he got into this spearfish and, and quite honestly it kind of scares the heck out of me a lot because they do this without tanks or anything you know they're just free diving down in the ocean and and uh you know it's a it's a it's a dangerous sport on its you know just on its merit of of just because you have to dive down without any air source and all that but he's uh he has he's got an amazing shape he is uh i mean he's he's doing things that even the spearfishing guys now can't hardly believe but you know hex aquatic has taken off so big and and we've really only had you know our own stuff we did some licensing experiments early on that you know, if if your if your licensees don't really know how to how to tell the message, it's hard for people to fathom what the suit does. And we finally decided to launch it ourselves. And uh, actually, my other business partner Warren Bird down in New Zealand runs most of that company out of there. But Hex Aquatic has taken off in the spearfishing world, huge. Um, you know, we actually had Hex suits on the United States spearfishing team this this year. And they had a very strong finish, strongest one they've had in quite a few years. Um, but it, it's amazing what these guys do. It really is. It's uh, you know they're they're getting much much closer. Um, some things that that you know that they 
they kind of knew but proved to themselves. Uh, I know one trip they did down in New Zealand, and they had one they had one guy who was actually the guy who was running the boat, but he liked to dive too. He had his regular suit. Everybody else had wetsuits, and they had shot a bunch of fish, and they had a big Mako shark come in, about a 12- or 14-footer, a big one, and came in. And interestingly enough, the guys in the heck suits were in the water, and the guy, the one guy without it, the Mako shark keyed on him every time, and they actually had to go down and, and poke him in the face with their spear guns and stuff to, to turn him. But uh, not saying he necessarily would attack him, but he definitely was keyed on the guy without the heck suit. And, uh, you know, they, they've seen that time and time again, but we actually have that on film. Um, and it's actually going to be featured in a, in a, our, the next show that we do on the Pursuit Channel. Um, it's going to air the end of this month is actually a chronicle of the history of Hex. And I think a lot of people will be really interested in that. But that encounter is actually featured in the aquatic part of that show. So anybody who wants to see that, um, like I said, we're the, this, this show is going to be called Hex Technology, the story behind the breakthrough. And it's a little different than our normal TV show that we do every week. But uh, it's one that really gives people the insight on the company, how it started, where we're headed. Um, you know, the, the, the aquatic side's also got us some military attention now, too, which we're extremely excited about. We've got... You know the Navy SEALs are using it and, and starting to buy quite a few of those too, and so it's some it's some really interesting piece of where it's moving. Um, you know that's one thing about this technology we learn more about it all the time, and and you know it's really expanding quickly. Oh yeah, well, it's it's awesome stuff, man. I I tried to I tried to hook you guys up with UA um, years ago, and it didn't work out. Um, you know that's not my call but i will say what we've been talking about this product and i'm normally not i'm normally not a sales pitch guy it's pretty pretty rare that we like have a podcast and we just really talk about you know products and you know to the fact where pe- i know people are like holy crap sounds like an info commercial because it <laughs> it it, lit- it it is and i also want to make a disclaimer mike didn't even know we were going to go in depth with this because that's what I wanted to do and I believe in it. It's it's literally a thin layer like uh ultra ultra lightweight and it doesn't matter what camo brand you represent as long as this is shielding your skin from exterior then it's working. So I wear the hex suit. Now I'm not perfect at it. If you want to be perfect, you need to have the gloves and the face mask. Um but I wear just the the liner, and I wear it just right over the top of my long johns, and then put my other stuff underneath, and um, or over the top, and it works awesome. I've used it on so many of the, you know, I've as you know, I've killed some crazy big animals um, up close, and I've been using it for has it been five years already? Six. Well, actually, we launched in 2010, so I probably got you one of the very first ones, I would think. It, yeah, 2010, it 2011, it's been a while. Yeah, it was, because it didn't even have color. It wasn't camo then. It was just... Yep, yep, yep. You had one of the original. The original were, were black, and, and uh, yeah, that's the first one we, we came out with. So, you know, I mean, you know, if you wanted an updated one, we'd be glad to get you one, by the way. <laughs> you know what's funny is you sent me another set, and um, I gave it... I gave it to my uncle um, from Mississippi because he was up here hunting with me and he was saying 
um, he was just telling me how down in Mississippi, the deer down there, they're just so in tune. And he said, you know, he goes, it's just so hard to kill a, to kill a matured buck down here because he said, these does will just, they'll just pick you up out and, you know, you'll be on the edge of a food plot in a tree that winds perfect. And he said, these does will just all of a sudden get, start going crazy once these old ones hit the field. And I told him like, you sure the wind's right? And he's he's a he's one of the people that go over the top with scent control too. So I I know that's a fact. He's actually the one that taught me how to hunt. So um, he's I know he's very legit. So I just said, man, you should try one of these suits out. I said that you know, and I kind of he's from the deep south of Mississippi. So I was telling him, you know, it blocks your electronic current. You know, <laughs> and he's kind of looking at me like. <laughs> he's like well i'll try it and then next thing i know he calls it his um he calls calls it his invisibility suit he goes man I, I love that invisibility suit and he uh he made me he made me get one for uh for my cousin uh down there my cousin john so yeah he's he's got his invisibility suit and uh he really believes in it, it said it told me that it makes a huge huge difference he said that if he could if he could figure out a way to just make sure that he, you know, was scent free all the time, he said there's just no way that he wouldn't be able to to kill the deer that he wants to kill. So, it's pretty awesome. the The very first ones, Mike, do you remember just to, you know, one of the simplest exercises that really show people how this works? Um, it well, there's two things. And I'm not, I didn't even talk to you about this. You're probably like, why is he going so in depth? Because this, <laughs> this, I was a skeptic. So I'm, t- I'm telling people this because I want people to know the little things. So, um, tell us about the test that you kind of, you guys did in the mall, just staring at people. And then, and then, um, just talk about the, the original motion detector lights and, you know, and what, what triggers the original motion detector mm-hmm. lights off because you guys were doing some tests on the original suits that I saw that was just, you know, and that's why I said with me not having the face mask on, it's not as effective as if you fully, you fully shield yourself, but tell us those two stories and we'll move on to archery stuff. <laughs> okay. Well, um, you know, the way back when, um, when we very first, the, the very first prototype stuff we had, that actually worked. It took us a while to get the get the fabric right. You know, just to touch on a little bit about how it works. Basically, our fabric has a conductive carbon grid in it that's interwoven in an interlocking grid pattern. So the whole piece of material is conductive, right? And so when it, when the energy hits it, it, it's the wavelength is large enough that it can't fit through that. The the uh, the uh, fabric becomes the path of least resistance. The 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 uh, energy is held in your held by capacitance, and it grounds out when you touch the ground. So it's real simple, and then people can go to our website and learn all about that. But way back when, my dad is a truck driver and has been his whole life, and he had a motion, one of the very first motion lights. And I want to really make sure people understand what we're talking about. We're talking about the old microwave lights, not the new ones that pick up infrared and all that, but the old microwave lights. And... One of the first things, I, before we even had any um, clothing made out of anywhere, I had this prototype material. It's probably a, I don't know, a 10 by 10 piece of material, I guess. And I thought, you know, I'm going to play with this. So we were out in front of my dad's light. And, of course, you know, when you walk in front of the light, it turns on, right? So you could 
put this over your head, and that's all I did. I didn't have any clothing. I just draped the thing over my head, and you could do anything you wanted to in front of that microwave light, and it would not turn on. Take it off, of course, it goes back to work. And so that was a, I thought I had the best-selling tool in the whole world at that point until I realized that 99% of the lights now are, are infrared, which uh, just from the scientific side, uh, you know, electromagnetic energy is, is, goes from, you know, extreme low frequency fields like what we put out in our bodies all the way through gamma radiation. Well, in that is also visible light and microwave. Now, the, the, the actual generation of the energy actually creates heat, okay? So what those lights pick up on is a byproduct of, of, our, of the electromagnetic energy that the, that the suit actually blocks. So anyway, like I said, big disclaimer on that, but uh, it was quite an eye-opener. And, you know, the, the stuff in the mall was kind of, uh, you know, I don't really tell anybody about that, John, much, because I sound like a weirdo, because <laughs> if you go, go to a, go I've to tried a, it. I've yeah, tried it. Yeah, it works, doesn't it? It yeah, does work. I know. You, you, I didn't try it pick, with the Pick out a person though. and stare at them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pick out a person and stare at them and see how long it takes for them to start looking around. But uh, anyway, I mean, that's a, a kind of a rudimentary test. That, that those go back to the early 2000s, you know. But uh, anyway, uh, like I said, it's, a, it's an interesting concept. Um, you know, I, I, a few other little things, um, and actually they're not little things. You know, we're, we're getting ready to launch another part of our company called Hex Wildlife, and basically it's for all the people out there who want to get close to animals but aren't like you and I that want to get close to them to, you know, run an arrow through them or something. We, uh, the, there's a lot of people out there who just want to get close to them and, you know, take pictures or whatever. And we're launching that, and I'm really excited because we're working with a, a, a biologist out of California named Forrest Galante. And he's been on Animal Planet and, and Nat Geo and you name it, a, a bunch. And he's actually, he just left a couple of days ago to do a full uh, – shoot for his own TV series that's going to be on Animal Planet. It's called uh, Extinct or Alive, and it's going to be a really neat show. But he's actually going to head up our Hex Wildlife, uh, Hex, Hex Wildlife Division for us, and we're really excited about where that's going to. So anyway, but yeah, if we want to talk about bow hunting, that's fine. I think we've probably <laughs> covered the gamut with Hex at this point. But uh, anyway, but no, it's, a, it's been a fun, fun project, and it continues to you know, we we learn about it all the time, and and it's it's really been a lot of fun for us. Oh yeah, well, first off, thanks for coming on. Aside from me giving you you know a, a big time to sell your product, which I'm happy for, but you you and I have been friends a long time before we were before we actually were, I guess. Well, I worked for you for a long time, so, um, yeah. Yeah. you know, I guess setting that aside, we were always friends and had a lot of respect for, you know, you have a, you, you've always been super thorough with your equipment. Um, you've shot in a, in a really a big variety of different types of archery events because you're a bow hunter. So you, uh, you know, you kill some really big stuff and you're a bow hunter. You do a lot of tuning with that. You've always, you know, normally if I kind of figure something out with broadheads or fletch configuration, which that actually happened this year when we talked um, at the show, we started talking about fletch configurations. I kind of told you about some testing I had done, you know, with three, mm -hmm. three, four, and six fletch. And then you're like, well, that's what I'm doing. So, of course, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. of course. But, um, 
you know, you've shot 3D, you've shot field, you've shot outdoor target, but then you also shot the ESPN games with, with Ulmer to where you guys were having to shoot really fast. <clears throat> so you, you've developed some cool quivers just for those types of things. I mean, you've, you've done a lot of stuff. So for those of you listening who don't know Mike Slinkard, um, he's, he's a legit, a hundred percent legit dude. If I was, if I was stuck and baffled on something relating to my own personal gear, you, you would 100% be, you know, you probably Zach Kurtzall or Darren Cooper, you guys would probably be the three people or Jerry Carter that I'd call and say, what the hell am I missing here? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, well, go for it. Oh, well, I was just going to say, I mean, you know, it's, it's funny, you know, sitting here in my early fifties thinking about how many years I've actually done this. I, I remember when, and you probably have, remember too, some of those old timers and they would be sounding just like us, you know, but, uh, you know, there, it's been quite a journey. And, and like I said, I've known you forever and, and you're honestly one of the absolute best all around archers that I know. Um, you know, there's a pretty elite group uh, in that really, there really is. And, and, uh, you know, I, I just been really fortunate and, you know, I started shooting, you know, 3d years ago to become a better bow hunter. And, uh, you know, I've been bow hunting my whole life and it really blossomed into, into a lot of things. And a lot of it has to do with who you meet. And you were one of those people that really, really helped me, uh, you know, coming up through and, and, you know, you and I kind of were shooting at the same time and as competitors originally. And then I got to know you a lot better. And of course we've shared campfires before and all that too, but, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been a fun trip. I mean, uh, you know, I've shot every kind of archery there is from Vegas all the way through the, like I said, the, the ESPN games. And, you know, I, the, those ESPN games, they're not around anymore, but they were the most addictive thing that I've ever done in archery, to be honest with you, outside of bow hunting. Yeah, um, you started a whole company because of it. <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I did, and then Hex came along and, and took all of my time and all my money so i kind of had to put that one on on the back burner but uh, it was called motion targets but you know there was something with that uh, about standing head to head and you know I, if anybody doesn't know how it worked you could probably go online and see it but you stand head to head and there's different targets and, and most of them you have to shoot fairly quickly and just a real quick story on that the uh, there was four stations and they kind of varied throughout the the times that they did the games. But the the final one was called the speed challenge, and basically you were standing at 25 yards and you had to break three inch discs as fast as possible. And you're standing right beside the guy who you have to. And it's a single elimination thing, so you either win or you go home. And the and then the, you know there's at the at the games there's four or five thousand people in the stands screaming and yelling at the same time. <laughs> and so you want to talk about an adrenaline rush, but Usually it came down to who won the speed challenge. And so, uh, you know, Randy Almer was, he is another great innovator, and he would come to the, sh- to the speed challenge, and he had developed this configuration on his bow where basically he got an, an arrow on his bow and he threw it at the riser and it would fall all the way down to the rest super fast. And, I mean, he was just dominating that. And I knew to, to be competitive I'd have to come up with something. So what I did, uh, this was actually the final years of the games, um, I actually developed a clip, basically, like a magazine on a rifle. Matter of fact, it was off of a machine gun rifle clip. <laughs> um, and so it, it, put the, it set the arrows just 
to the left of my, I'm right-handed, so it was just to the left of my uh, string. And so all I had to do was reach around the string, grab a knock, and put it and slide it to the, to the string. As soon as I hit, hit the string, it automatically fed on the rest. And, of course, I'm shooting a big well-tail follow and all that. Well, it put some of my times down to under 10 seconds and four arrows accurately. <laughs> and so when I showed up with this thing, I mean, uh, I mean, immediately everybody else was going, oh, my God, that can't even be legal. And, you know, and I, I have the foresight enough to kind of go through the judges and, and you know, clarify what was legal and what wasn't. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and so, I mean, it was, it was pretty crazy. And the, and the other thing about it, I didn't try to silence it at all, so it sounded for all the world like an 870 shotgun when you were loading it every time. <laughs> so it was distracting, and it was a lot of fun. Um, you would have thought I should have won that year, but I actually had some other equipment issues that, that uh, kind of messed me up on that. But um, but it really was, and, it, you know, it was the, one of the highlights of, of my career, actually, was the practice day. and. And Randy Almer was known to be the guy who would pick out who he thought was the most likely guy to win that year, and he would practice right beside them all the time, you know, and, and you oh, know, yeah. that's Randy all the oh, way. Oh, yeah. Yep. And uh, so Randy and I shot almost all day together, and I was probably beating him 80% of the time. You know, if I, the only time he'd beat me, if it, he never misses. So, you know, if I missed one, it gave him an opportunity he could beat me. But um, it was one of the highlights of my career to have Randy, and Randy and I shot all day together, and it was just uh, it was really, really a lot of fun. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, sometimes you just got to think out of the box and, you know, figure out what's going to work. And even if nobody else has thought of it before, sometimes those are the best things. I know. I, I got target panic just hearing your time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you you kind of had to make it go off. There's no doubt about that. But uh, but the thing is, if you you know, it was a it was quite a quite a practice thing, and and uh, you know, a lot of guys do get panicky, and I actually went through a little bout with it. But you know, it's just a mental a mental practice to get over it, and you know, now it's even to this day, it's not an issue. So yeah. Well, I sent but it, you. I can, I can definitely make a shot go off if I have to, though. <laughs> <laughs> I sent you. Um, I sent you some of my some of the Elevate arrow rests um, after we mm-hmm. after we saw each other at the ATA. Um, you know, you were kind of showing me some new stuff that you had going, and then uh, I was like, "Have you seen the rest?" And then I, you know, because your because of your ability to envision machine gun clips into archery archery loaders um i figured you would definitely be someone that would give me a super um straightforward opinion on it too and uh you're shooting them so i i think uh i'm really happy with the elevate i think i'm 95 percent where i want it to be when you take it out of the package right now um i've made a lot of changes since the very first ones and i've made changes since yours too um, I actually have a new bracket that's really nice for the PSE and Matthews and Bowtech limbs, um, which you know makes it makes it really clean to attach it down there now. Um, if you're doing a limb-driven system, but just having the ability to switch blades out, shoot it for you know like you and I, we're archers, we're not just hunters, we're not just spot shooters. I mean one day we could be shooting a field round the next day you know you could be out shooting a espn round so what's your what's your feedback on it uh john as as expected you know i i saw those on the on the online i you know on your 
on your video, uh, your online stuff, and was really interested in it. And, and, you know, honestly, it didn't surprise me that it's the best rest I've ever used. It didn't surprise me a bit because I know the guy who was designing the thing. So, uh, but, yeah, it, it is, number one, it's the easiest to set up rest one of the easiest I've ever used. Um, you know, I've shot it. I've got one on a target bow out here. I've got one on my hunting bows. It's plural. I guess I got two on a hunting bows. But, uh, <laughs> you know, literally the setup, no matter whether you're using the launcher or you're using the, the whale tail, the setup is so easy. It's so micro-adjustable, and that's what I really like about it because, you know, out here in Oregon we can't shoot mechanical, so everything's fixed, fixed blades. And so, you know, as a lot of people realize that that's that adds another challenge to your to your bow hunting setup, and it's very important to be able to micro adjust that rest back and forth or up or down in order to get your field points and your broadheads together. Because to me, that is the, the when you have that, that's when your bow's tuned to the ultimate ultimate accuracy when all those arrows hit together. And there's a few things that I do outside of the arrow rest too. Like I said, we were talking about the six fletch. I'm I'm a pretty big believer in the in the low lower profile six fletch, but for that. But uh, but that rest was crazy good. Um, you know, like I said, it literally sets up. I can micro adjust it a tiny little bit, and that little tiny bit you need to get your arrows from you know two inches apart to all together. And uh, it, it's just an amazing rest. And like I said, uh, I'm excited to hear about the new the new uh, uh, the new thing you came up with, so you could literally change from a whale tail to a launcher, or if you broke a launcher or you broke whale tail, take that off, put it back on, and get it in exactly the right place. I'm excited to see that too. Yeah, that octagon, the octagon bracket, it lets you replace the blades without. I mean, it's not like having the two hole where they where there was play in there. You and I have both used mm-hmm. those launchers oh, in the yeah. past, um, but but now um, you know some of the newer ones are going to have a piece where the actual whale tail is going to have the octagon too. So that's going to be really, really good. Well, I want to talk about your, let's, I mean, you touched on the fletching subject. So people are really curious. So I had just, so, uh, we, you know, some people have seen me shoot the four fletch. Um, I shot four fletch last year, but there's also, there's a reason why I don't particularly shoot the six fletch, but another option that's good, especially for whitetail hunters, or um, mid-distance guys is a, a smaller vein in a six fletch and really all you have to do is use your standard clamp so you know a standard clamp that does three fletches and after you fletch the third arrow you take the arrow out you rotate it the 180 degrees you slide it back in and then you just go through your three steps again and that will give you a six fletch um, so tell us what you're running and what what fixed blade because the thing is it's great that you're getting fixed blades and field points to hit together but there's certainly some broadhead designs that's just not going to make that possible um so i mean i know that that's all part of the homework so tell us tell us what you're running yeah well what i'm running personally right now i'm running the fusion veins and they're the they're not the high ones they're the mid uh the mid uh, height and I'm running six of those, and they're the three-inch fusions. Um, and, you know, I, I was honestly started this whole testing process because I was having, you know, more animals than I liked that were actually jumping the arrow. Um, and, you know, you hear, hear, you know, saying, well, they're jumping the bow. After video and hundreds of animals getting shot. I agree. And, 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 and watching that. 
they're they're hearing the arrow coming more than they're hearing the bow go off. Yeah, I've, and I, I've used slow motion where I can actually I've I've my bow's gone off and I can actually see the animals just look towards the bow and then their eyes raise up to like look at the projectile mm-hmm. that they can hear coming and that's what they're reacting to is they're they're not looking at you they're looking they're literally looking at this sound that they hear coming in. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, I've got video of Impala in Africa literally watching the arrow go over their back. <laughs> so, you know, and, and they're hearing it coming. And so, you know, what I was shooting back then, I was shooting four of the blazers, the high-profile blazers. And, you know, I, I, it, it was like one year it just seemed like I was getting a lot of that. It's like, man, I, I, there, needs, there needs to be something better. So I went in and I actually set my video camera with the shotgun mic, which is very sensitive, downrange. And I fletched up all these different configurations, three-fletch, four-fletch, high-profile, low-profile, whatever. And, you know, the and you know the quietest ones with absolute quietest ones were, were my, like, little target veins, obviously, but they're not going to control my broadhead. So through a bunch of trial and error, I finally came up with a six-fletch thing. And the first time I'd ever seen six-fletch, again, was from our buddy Randy Ulmer. I was down at his house and and uh, was looking at some of the stuff laying around on his bench, which was extremely interesting. <laughs> Anybody that ever has a chance to do that, you would learn a lot. But uh, anyway, he was running Six Fletch, and I, and I remembered that. And so I went and, and actually went to this configuration that I'm using now, actually spins the arrow two and a half times faster than my four fletch water, and also at the same time is, was like the second or third quietest that I tried out everything. And it's the quietest one that I ever that I tried that would actually control broadhead. And you know, of course, one of the things I was kind of worried about was my my downrange, you know, accuracy because you know it does have more drag on it and all that. But uh, you know, I've been able to run my sight tapes, um, you know, off the Arch Advantage program with a you know the four fletch. I use a, the I, I I plug in four fletch and five uh, five inch four fletch. And it comes out, so my sight tapes are good. And, I mean, I'm shooting them all the way out to, I mean, I think my furthest, uh, my, my slider goes down to like 135, and it's right on all the way out. So, um, But as far as getting broadheads and field points to get together, it is probably the most, the most uh, effective method that I've seen, you know, or shortcut that I've seen. It really, really does. And the other nice thing about it, if you use a bright vein, you can really see them too. So, oh yeah, it looks a like a golf ball. It literally looks like a golf ball going through the air. Yeah, it does. It does. But you know, I, I put as much helical as I can get on them, and that's really important. Is having max helical because really for broadhead accuracy, you know, there's a lot of things that come into that. You know, forward to center and all that, but. You know, getting that arrow to spin, it's just like a bullet. You know, I mean, the faster you can get it to spin, the less effect those blades are going to have on the air in front of them. So um, it's it's something I kind of, you know, worked out a little bit, and, and I'm really sold on it. It really seems to work well for me. What head are you using? What head and what arrow are you using? Um, I'm I'm shooting a Gold Tap uh, Velocity Pro 300s is what I've been shooting for the last few years, and uh, and I'm a trophy taker guy. To, as far as the uh, broadhead, the, it's uh, the Shuttle T Lock is the oh, one. Oh yeah, that, I mean that great, great yeah. lock of those. Yeah, yeah, they've been. Yeah. I shot those for a long time. I always said um, Shuttle T's, um, the G5 Striker, 
um, the muzzy trocars and mm-hmm. and the old um, Rocky Mountain turbos. Those were all really good flying fixed blade heads. Um, well, have you found? Have you found what kind of what kind of point weight are you running up front, Mike? Like F- um, I'm F- running a hundred. I'm I'm running a hundred grades in the front. But then I am putting a little bit of weight in the back of that insert, too. I think I'm putting 30 grains in the back. I'm actually not optimum on mine uh, for, uh, you know, I, honestly, if in a perfect world, a little front of center would probably, you know, theoretically be better. But, you know, I played around with that quite a bit. And actually, I'm, I think I'm running 30 grains in the, in the insert and then 100 grains on the, on the point. And, uh, you know, like I said, I'm only about 7% front of center. I you normally like to go a little, a little more than that. But... Uh, you know, it, it, the accuracy's there, and it's all the way out to long range. So, I mean, gosh, what more can you ask for? You know. Yeah. Well, and especially like you said, you're trying to you're trying to work around the rules of your state. Um, one question I have: have you have you checked really the difference in drag, like a deceleration at that longer distance? If you shot, say, you shot your six Vletch um, versus, you know versus a three fletch how much higher is the three fletch at that distance well there's there's definitely more drag there 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 is um and you know i i haven't actually shot them together but i know that from the from my site program so what i use is you know i use a spot hog seven pin site but i use it on their on their adjustable um it's uh tommy hog rest so basically what i do is i have 20 through 80 in my fixed pens right and then I use the bottom pin for anything longer. And, and you know, I don't Same shoot animals me. that far, but it's, but it's fun to play. Yeah, pretty much. Imagine that. Huh, yeah, no kidding. Like. <laughs> anyway, yeah. um, but I use the bottom pin as my floater. And, you know, when you put the – I use the Archer's Vantage program on, on that. So you can see because to get it to work I had to go with the – like I said, I have to, I I put in a four fletch five inch vein, all right, which nobody uses four fletch five inch veins probably anymore much, but I put that in the program and that actually gave me my my drag coefficient. So I so I know that it's uh, it's that's got more drag, but for me the the difference in ease of tunability and and you know visibility and there's just a lot of advantages. Plus it's quiet in the air and that actually surprised me that a six fletch would be quieter than quieter than four fletch uh, high profile, particularly the high profile stuff. The stuff that I found I found that had the most uh, noise going in. But uh, yeah, they anyway do. with they all this. Do. Yeah, they do, yeah. especially on that fusion. And um, I I did some testing on some veins, um, the fusion, the the two inch high profile fusion. I don't know if you know this. Do you know I was part of designing that? I didn't. I oh, didn't yeah, know that. Yeah. So the the fusion, the actual base of the fusion, the clear base, that was my concept, mm-hmm. is to have two really? two different materials. Yeah, I worked on that. Um, the very first one was were solid colors, but the all the shape of that whole vein was really um, based on feedback. And I've got all the photo documentation that I did for Tim Kent. Do you know Tim? Mm-hmm. You know Tim, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. 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 And yeah. Um, and see, back then that was when blazers were just getting going. And what I found was blazers were really noisy compared to other ones because I was doing the shame. I was shooting past my microphone and then i would come in and see what the decibel level was on my on my editing mm-hmm. software and what i found was like on a blazer where the where that sharp tip 
comes to the top of the vein right before the radius if i mm-hmm. nip if i nip that off with like a little pair of um fingernail clippers it would quiet them down quite a bit because what i think what was happening was you have this straight line going and where the straight line meets that curved radius on the back i think the back of that vein was acting like almost like a diaphragm call and it you know it was fluttering so if i rounded it it wouldn't have that noise so on the fusions that's why it's rounded at the tip but then when it falls off the back you know, it slopes back and then drops down. So it's a little bit different, but the higher ones, the higher, you know, the shorter and taller it is, the more drag it it seems to get, you know, it's, it's regardless, you know, it's kind of like a roof. If your roof eventually has the same, you know, same peak height, but it's further away, you know, that gradual slope, it just seems like the air can channel slower over it than when it's, you know, like a, a steep blunt object it's a lot like um you know once people slap a uh, a sound or a, one of those led light bars on the top of their truck you ride in that thing mm-hmm. you can barely hear anything because all you can hear is the wind sucking that two by two bar across the top of the roof you know so it it makes that that stuff at the peak of that radius makes a big difference on that sound but um i need to get you some of my um some of the these max stealth veins um i love these things they're working so good i need to get you some i'm going to send you some and let you try them out yeah i'd love to i'd love to try those actually i saw those and and you know i i've uh i've kind of worked on my configuration so i kind of you know, i'm i'm one of those guys when i find something i stick with it but uh <laughs> yeah those things look pretty cool i would love to try a, and fletch a dozen of them up i'll bet you they'd work just just perfect with my six flush configuration. Yeah, I'm curious. Would. I'm curious how they would how they would compare side by side with noise and drag. It'd be worth that test yeah. anyway. Um, it, it would for sure. I'd love love to do it. Absolutely. Now with your so you're shooting a multi pin sight and then you're using your bottom pin pretty much as your rover. I do the same, but I'm using it. I'm using my you know my original Sherlock, um, my original Sherlock that you know Steve actually made for me when he was mm-hmm. still alive um but do you do you center your housing in your peep all the time and then look at your pins or are you the because like cooper and zach they always center their pin regardless of what pin they shoot they center it in their peep i've always found mm-hmm. that i can never get a sight scale to work worth a damn that way and you know, it just seems like with the multi-pin sight, that's kind of a hard way to do it, especially with a hunter size peep. But how do you yeah. do it? Center your pin or yeah, center no, your housing? I, yeah, I, I, kind of both. I, I center <laughs> basically my, my, uh, my. Uh, that sounds like a silly answer, but um, it. What I do with that is um, I have my fifty-yard pin, which is always my middle one. I actually got a. Uh, rolled some of that glowing paint, you know, so it kind of glow in the dark. So, and I put it in the middle and that's really what I focus on to center on. And it's always in the middle of my housing. So I'm focusing not on the housing cause I shoot a little bit smaller peep than that. Um, unless I'm planning on, you know, if I'm coming whitetail hunting or something that I know I'm going to be shooting when it's very, very last light. But, you know, if I'm going to hunt antelope or, you know, stuff where I'm not too worried about super late shots. Um, I, I use a super peep so I can change the aperture. 
So when I'm really wanting to shoot as accurately as I can at distance, you know, like if I'm going antelope hunting or whatever, I shoot a little smaller peak, and I actually focus on that centering that the pin the pin that I have colored, all right, and then I then I so I'm not really using the housing; I'm more on that pin, and then I just use the rest of them just like you would if you were centering the housing. So, um, and it's just you know years ago that's how we started, and and I've been doing it so long I don't know how to do it any different, I guess. But, what uh, what are you shooting for uh, for brace height and stuff? Um, I'm shooting the new Carbon Air right now um, from PSE with the new cam system they got on it. Honestly, just a phenomenal bow. It, if not if not the best one I've ever shot, it's got to be one of it. It's so forgiving. But I think it's running like a six and a half inch brace. It's not a super high brace, um, but uh, really forgiving bow. I've really enjoyed shooting it this year and and. Uh, having really good success with it i mean just like i said with your rest on it and you know all the advantages they have i've also got a new release that spot dog just came out with that i'm really pumped about um but uh but yeah that that combination is well literally once i tuned the bow and the the second group that i shot at 40 yards with this bow i robin hooded one of the arrows and had the other one touching a three three shot group <laughs> so uh I can't say that I've ever done that on a bow I just picked up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sometimes they take work, especially with, you know, you or I. We're, we're kind of, we're pushing uh, our expectations a lot further. We're not just trying to make sure we can, you know, shoot a five-inch group at 20 yards. You know, we, we, we really try to push that out to a further distance. What's, um? Yeah. let me ask you this, what's one thing you see trending in our industry right now that, with people's setups or people's gear that kind of drives you crazy? So kind of <laughs> <laughs> um, that was a loaded boy, outside, question, but I, out, I, I'm curious. Outside of whisker biscuits, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Not to talk down about anything, but the, the, from, a, from the pure physics standpoint, I have a hard time with that one. Uh, but, uh, anyway, um, you know, I don't know. There's, there's you coming from like you and I did where, you know the, the kind of the old school thinking and some of that some of this some of this new stuff is a little bit different to to uh accept although i mean people are having success with it so you know what i rather than you know really talking bad about things and then i gotta watch myself when i do that because i am very very opinionated on a lot of stuff and <laughs> that's why I, it gets me in trouble it, 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 it gets me in trouble more than more than anything else but uh you know i mean um like I said, if it, if it if it truly works, the the biggest thing that I found is, regardless of what you know, other people might tell you or anything else, if you've got something that truly works and you've truly tested it, not just working in your head, but truly tested it, um, you know, then then I'm good with that. I mean, as long as as long as what you have is is putting them down fast and and uh, you know and, and it's working for you you know that's that's good but, but I, the, my biggest thing is i always want to test it and kind of figure out what's going to happen in all the different scenarios like if it's cold out or if it's hot out or if it's high humidity and low humidity or you know the, all that kind of stuff affects your equipment and how it works and uh you know so i to me it always goes back to basic physics if 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 basic physics says that it's going to work that's probably going to work pretty well, you know, but yeah. still test it and make sure that make sure that it's all going to work. And like I said, there's some stuff out there that seems really wild, um, stuff that 
I honestly probably wouldn't even ever try just because of the physics standpoint. But, uh, you know, I mean, if you know basic, archery is really a simple game. If you know basic physics and understand how they work, you can usually figure out the, the good stuff from the bad stuff pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. Common sense plays in so many times when someone says, well, so-and-so is using this, and, you know, it's supposed to fly like a field tip, or they're saying, you know, this this hits the same at, you know, you can use the same pin out. To, it's like, listen, it's not scientifically possible. Exactly. <laughs> you have too many exactly. variables that are affecting air current or whatever else that just it doesn't happen you know and someone yeah. like someone like james park they could talk to you about the the reasons why it, it why it won't work because of physics till your ears fall off and it just goes way over your head yeah some of it's common sense my my big um my big pet peeve is i shouldn't say it's a pet peeve it's just one of these things where i'm like waiting for the industry to change maybe Maybe 10 years from now, I'll, I'll be the guy doing it, and I'll say that I'm wrong. But I just think people are going too crazy on the amount of weight on their stabilizers right now. It's mm-hmm. you know I'm seeing I'm seeing posture and form change tremendously, and you know I think a lot of it comes from the target world, especially since they've shortened our distances to where like you know the Arizona Cup last week was shot you know everything shot at 50 meters you would set yourself up a lot differently to just be at one distance you can compress you can lean back you can have you know this different form than if you had to shoot back when you and i did where it was really more versatile you were continually changing distances angles you know you're certainly shooting in competition a lot further um i just I don't know. I just don't get it. I, maybe I'm missing something, but I just know that there's a there's an amount of weight that I can put on the end of my stabilizers, and once I hit a threshold, my form has to start changing to pick it up, and or to hold it out there. And even if I can hold it steadier, my overall technique and form just isn't where isn't where I know it is when I'm able to shoot something that I can control. Yeah, no, I, I'd agree with you, actually. You know, again, stabilizers are a lot about physics and physical, you know, the what you can physically do, you know, because you got to hold that weight up there. And, you know, if you put a, put a quarter in your hand and hold it out there, you can hold it a long time. And if you put a five-pound weight in there, you're not going to hold it as long, all right? So, there's a there's a, a line between how heavy that bow can be and 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 you know and, and how well you can hold it up. But also, people don't realize what a stabilizer does. It, it it controls torque and it balances the bow. And you don't have to necessarily have heavy weight to do that. You just have to have the weight in the right position for for you know however your bow configuration is. And your draw length has a lot to do with that as well. Um, but uh, you know that's one of the things that that I found a long time ago was, was how specific draw lengths can really affect you. And when, you know, we talk about shooting up and downhill and, and the stabilization does that too. If you're shooting uphill and you have to hold that weight up more, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be harder to, harder to do that. Um, so you have to, you know, figure all that stuff in. Um, but yeah, I mean, 
you know, it does seem like people are going to a lot heavier, heavier stabilizer. And, you know, like on my hunting bow, I use a, a B-Singer stabilizer, and I've got weight out. But it sets way out there, and it's really not heavy. But the weight's out there, so it actually has a has the you know torque control ability on the bow. So um, you know, so you can still hold it up, but still get the the do what a stabilizer does. You know, a stabilizer a stabilizer is not meant to, in my opinion, the the first most important thing about a stabilizer isn't to quiet the bow, but it's to make the bow balance. And so when you get to full draw, that levels in the middle and all that stuff, you don't have to worry about it so much. And um, but yeah, I'd agree. It's, um, a lot of people are going way heavy on that stuff for sure. Yeah, and I think with some of these rear weights, people are they're having to manipulate their form. Like bef- while they're mm-hmm. addressing yep. the target, they're having to manipulate themselves to work around these, you know, these stabilizers and these weight stacks to where it actually. I watch people put themselves in improper positions during their draw during their literally their draw routine or their draw cycle trying to load the arrow and the mount amount of you know their front shoulders always tight and compressed and they're turning their hand mm-hmm. and they're having to load and everything like that to avoid this big stabilizer and they're never relaxing that front shoulder throughout the entire tournament and i think that's one of the most important things to people being able to maintain good shots throughout a full day is letting yourself rest between shots you know it's like if you gave someone a can of coke and said you know here can you hold this well there's no problem for him to hold it for a while but if you said i want you cannot let go of this can of coke for the whole day that can of coke would get really annoying and you would you know you would certainly start to fatigue just based off time and i think a lot of people that have these stabilizers that are making them manipulate how their form is, even during the loading of the arrow process and all that, I think it has an effect on how they perform towards the end of the day. I really do. I, I, I don't disagree a bit. You know, so, you know, if you're out there shooting all day long and, you know, and, and, you know, muscles get tired and everything like that. But, you know, you and I both know when we're, when you're in a full draw, there shouldn't be, a, you know, tense muscles in our body other than our back muscles. That's it. Yeah. And, you know, if you're, having to, if you're having to tense a muscle in your arm, I'm a really, really particular about particularly the front hand and all that. Is, I mean, to me, I mean, if I could cut my arm off and put a two-by-four out there, it'd be awesome, you know, <laughs> other than not having an arm. <laughs> but uh, from the archery shooting standpoint, it'd be great because you couldn't have any muscle, uh, you know, any, any muscle intervention with that front hand. And if you're out there and you've got to use your muscles to hold that bow up physically and you've got tense muscles in your body other than your back muscles, you know, it's not going to be repeatable, number one, and you're going to suffer an accuracy. And, and throughout the day, as the day goes on, it's just going to get worse. Yep. So, no, that's the way it is. So. Well, cool, dude. We're we're at the hour mark. We need to do this again. Um, you and I need we to do. Either. That was a fast hour. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It always is. When you said, "Hey, let's talk for a little while before we record," I thought, "Oh, great. Here we go." I do that with I do that all the time with um, with some of my buddies. Uh, Dave Step will call, and I'll be like, he'll start talking. I'm like, "Hey, can I just can we record this?" And he'll be like, "What, dude? We're not." And then. <laughs> By the end, you know, he's like, I don't have time to do a podcast. And then 50 minutes later, we're still on the phone talking about all these things. And it's always related something to archery. I'm like, 
Dude, that would have been a really good podcast for people because we get into these subjects no different than when you and I saw each other at the ATA show. We talked about a whole bunch of things that were, you know, that's just what we do. It's your your life. It's my life. It's, you know, our buddy Scott Eastman's life. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's just, it's all we've ever done. We're fortunate to where we have a career literally in archery or bow hunting. Um, but, yeah, I mean... It it was fun, and I want to I want to say we do have, I know um, we did just get a, another shipment of the Elevate rests in, um, so you can get them at knockonartree.com. Um, those are on there, and then Mike, where can they check your stuff out? Yeah, you can check us out at hexllc.com. It's spelled H E C S. A lot of people go H E X, but that's not what it is. It's H E C S. <laughs> LLC.com, and that's our main one. You can also look at Hex Aquatic as well for the dive gear. And uh, we actually just launched the website for Hex Wildlife, so it's on there now too. So lots of different places to look, and and uh, you can always just Google us as well and Google me, and I'll come up on Hex, I'm sure. So anyway. I, uh, I Actually, while you and I were talking, I looked at um, Scott's Instagram account, and he posted a badass picture yesterday. Um, he looks like he's literally hovering death in the ocean. <laughs> he's all yeah, he's it, all crouched up with this. It's an awesome shot. I posted it on my um, on my Instagram, and I told people to give Scott a follow. So you'll see his uh, his handle there. I'm kind of curious how mu- how many people he goes up overnight. But um, <laughs> hey, hey, man, I appreciate it so much. Um, stay on the line after I end this podcast because I want to ch- chat for a few minutes. But um, sure. yeah, everyone, uh, thanks for tuning in. And a uh, big launch date for the new website as of right now is going to be May 2nd. We're going to do a live feed, walk you through some of the new features. This will be a beta version. There's going to be changes that will be made um, after the first 30 days, but we're pretty much going to get part of it going. Um, so thanks, everybody. Appreciate it and knock on. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing. knockonarchery.com